0: Welcome everyone to episode six of the Curseland podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I tried to make this episode a little bit longer than the other ones have been because I know it's the holiday season and those of you might enjoy this if you've got some sort of long commute or something like that around this time of year. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. In early December, the House Freedom Caucus, a group of conservative Republicans aiming to push their party rightward, released a detailed agenda for the first hundred days of the new administration. The document consists mostly of hundreds of existing rules they'd like to see repealed, Some are expected targets—climate regulations, Title IX provisions, the National School Lunch Program. Others are a bit more surprising. They also want to roll back conservation standards for ovens and dishwashers and block rules that would restrict tanning to customers over 18. But high up at the top, in box 3A, flops an unusually slimy legislative actor—the catfish. From the website atlasobscura.com Why the U.S. government treats catfish unlike any other fish. And the story is by Kara Giamo. An unexpected political hot potato, the regulatory status of catfish has beleaguered Democrats and Republicans alike for nearly a decade. The story of its rise to controversy involves multiple nations and years of legislative strife and perhaps a rare opportunity for bipartisan consensus. Catfish has long been an important part of the American diet. Native Americans and European settlers stewed and fried them by the millions, and the first large-scale aquaculture endeavors in America were catfish farms, which began stretching across Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana in the 1960s. A few decades later, though, a competitor emerged. Pangasius, or Asian catfish. A major export of Vietnam, Pangasius began swimming into American markets after the U.S.-Vietnam trade embargo was lifted in the mid-1990s and quickly gobbled up a large percentage of the market. This has sparked what is known as the catfish dispute, an ongoing argument between American and Vietnamese producers. Catfish Farmers of America, the industry's main U.S. trade association, has sued the Department of Commerce repeatedly. Although they have won some victories, all Vietnamese catfish must now be labeled made in Vietnam, for example, it hasn't been enough to stop the torrent of competition. And so in 2008, they took an unusual step. They asked to be more strictly regulated. Their argument at the time was food safety. There were a lot of YouTube videos of Vietnamese fish farms floating around that were not appealing. It's not a situation that you want to have your food come from, says Dan Flynn of Food Safety News, who has reported on this saga since the outset. Together with a few food safety groups, Catfish Farmers of America pushed for more stringent inspections. Thanks mostly to the influence of Mississippi Senator Tad Cochran, the 2008 Farm Bill contained a special provision moving catfish inspection duties from the FDA to the USDA. Up until this bill, food inspection responsibilities in the U.S. were clearly delineated. The USDA checked out meat, poultry, and eggs exclusively, while the FDA took care of everything else, including our favorite whiskery fish. This goes back to the days of Upton Sinclair, says Flynn, based on the principle that meat should be subject to continuous inspection. While the FDA does random inspections, the USDA checks all the domestically produced and imported goods under their jurisdiction unless they are confident that the countries and states producing the goods have similar inspection standards. Deciding to treat catfish, and only catfish, like beef or chicken, throws a wrench in the system. When you walk into a facility that processes seafood, you see cod coming down the line, you see shrimp coming down the line, or tuna. All those products are regulated by the FDA, says Gavin Gibbons of the National Fisheries Institute, a U.S. seafood industry trade group. Now, stop the presses, quite literally, refit the manufacturing, and roll the assembly line again for catfish, and now the USDA is the regulator. It is. And here, Gibbons uses that boogie word that sinks so much legislation, duplicative. We do not need the police department and the sheriff standing at the stop sign to make sure people don't run it. So far, though, this wrench is largely hypothetical. Before the switch could be made, there had to be a plan in place. And this was a slow seven-year process full of -of tug-of-wars, interagency drama, and arguments over what exactly a catfish is. Millions were spent, both agencies had responsibilities, and no catfish really got inspected, Flynn wrote in 2014. The USDA didn't look at its first fish until spring of 2016. Despite these setbacks, some supporters of the bill have held the line. But Gibbons and others doubt their motives. It's a running joke in Washington that this has anything to do with food safety, he says. Instead, he casts it as a blatant attempt to undercut free trade, Plus, he says, individual catfish farmers are jumping ship, fearing that the regulations will make life harder for them, which Gibbons' diagnosis as a classic case of be careful what you wish for. Catfish Farmers of America did not respond to requests for comment. Meanwhile, the Novo Catfish Inspection has gained a lot of enemies on both sides of the aisle. The U.S. Government Accountability Office has deemed the program unnecessary ten times. Democratic Senator Janine Shaheen has repeatedly sponsored amendments that move toward eliminating it, along with Republican Senator John McCain. In a 2013 article in Politico, McCain called the species in question a crusty mudfish and accused it of being a bottom feeder with friends in high places. Other senators have accused it of violating various aspects of the World Trade Organization Treaty which would leave the U.S. open to disputes from other countries and fear it may lead to boycotts on American goods. Nowhere is this sentiment more apparent than at www.repealcatfish.com, a website dedicated to getting rid of the inspection program. Run by the National Fisheries Institute, the site contains a lot of convincing arguments for supporting the repeal and, thanks to its smorgasbord of custom videos, cut-and-paste infographics and heated slogans, it's also a good way to viscerally understand exactly how fed up the regulation's opponents are. There are multiple comparisons to the Emperor's new clothes and an infographic entitled The Twelve Days of Catfish, which suggests that they would like you to bring this issue up at a Christmas party. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know everyone's urging catfish repeal, the homepage promises. Perhaps, in this divisive political age, catfish repeal will be what finally unites us. Maybe the controversy will land the U.S. in World Trade Organization court. Or maybe the catfish will remain stuck in limbo. Neither cat nor fish, neither meat nor seafood, inspected either double or not at all. It's hard to tell. As Flynn says, chuckling, the more years it goes on, the stranger it gets. The day was fine, but cold, Saturday, January 12, 1889, and John Owsley, a 22-year-old coal driver in Louisville, was thirsty. This was his usual state, as he was an alcoholic. As fate would have it, he saw a friend equally fond of drink, Milton Jeffigan, out on the street. The pair went to saloon after saloon, treating each other in turn to beer and whiskey, By the time they staggered their way to 34th Street, both were drunker than boiled owls. They began arguing over a question that inevitably arises when two or more men imbibe alcohol. Which one of us can hold the most liquor? Each maintained that he could drink more than the other. Their friendly debate turned into an argument. The argument became a fight broken up only by members of a gathering street crowd. Someone came up with a diplomatic solution. Toss up a coin, the lucky man to first choose a test for his companion. From the Kentucky Book of the Dead, a story by Kevin McQueen, a slightly foolish wager. Jeffigan won the coin toss and declared that he would admit Owsley was the better man if he would drink all the whiskey Jeffigan could buy. Owsley agreed to the terms and off they, and various deeply interested bystanders, went to Frank Lodi's bar ironically located on Water Street. Jeffigan purchased a half gallon of inferior grade whiskey for $1. thirty-five. As the crowd watched, Owsley drank it all in less than four minutes. At first, Owsley seemed unaffected. After some conversation with friends, no doubt on weighty matters, he stepped outside to take in the air. Boatman found him an hour later on the wharf, unconscious and twitching. Owsley's friends carried him to his home at 19th and Pyle Streets, where, despite ministrations from a doctor, he died on Monday after enduring horrible suffering. But at least he won the bet. Almost exactly a week later, his friend Milton Jeffigan was killed by a sore loser after a night of gambling. One of the best things about newspapers, as well as the online Darwin Awards, is they serve up a daily ration of cautionary tales. When we read about some reckless stunt that goes awry, we have been warned of what may result should we also try it. Of course, there are also those who refuse to take heed at their own peril. Although John Owsley's demise received wide coverage in the Kentucky press, only a few months later Bill Slinker of Horse Cave, Hart County, thought he would prove his mettle by drinking a gallon of whiskey and six buckets of ice water within 12 hours. His obituary is worth quoting as a deterrent. His sufferings were intense, and nine hours after he died, blood issued from his nose and mouth in a stream. Slinker's death received enough national attention to inspire a callous joke in the Chicago news. It is difficult to see anything peculiar about the death of a Kentucky man who had been so injudicious as to drink water. Researching the most devastating weapons in the world, no one could blame you for feeling a little overwhelmed. The first nuclear weapon used in a war was dubbed Little Boy by the U.S. government and was deployed on August 6, 1945. Since that date, humanity has basically turned into a Willy Wonka factory for different types of nuclear weapons, with countless iterations and improvements appearing over time. As with any project during the Cold War, the titanic governments of the Soviet Union and the United States were in a race for supremacy. From the website TheVintageNews.com, a story by Ian Harvey, when a not-so-nuclear bomb was lost in a 1958 training disaster. The problem with being in a rush to innovate and supply a massive standing military body such as the United States Army is that there are countless opportunities for mistakes to be made or things to go wrong. Sadly, even the most devastating weapons in the world are not exempt from incompetence or accidents. The Mark 15 bomb, according to the Nuclear Weapon Archive, was a 7,600-pound bomb with interchangeable, removable payloads. It was retired in 1965. One of the main benefits of the Mark 15 was that the payload could be taken out of the casing, making it into a training munition. When the payload, generally a 3.8 megaton nuclear munition, was removed, the Mark 15 was essentially a large conventional explosive. This is one of the reasons it was such a popular training munition, because it allowed a pilot to carry a nuclear bomb casing without the fear of causing the awe-inspiring damage of a thermonuclear blast. The Mark 15 was carried by the B-47 bomber, the mainline bomber for the United States until 1969. This bomber was created by Boeing, which had been spitballing ideas for jet-based bombers in 1943, but couldn't figure out a way to utilize the power of the jet engines fully while using a straight-wing design. In 1945, however, there was a breakthrough in German engineering that a Boeing aerodynamicist discovered at a secret German aeronautics laboratory. Boeing explains that George Scherer was on a research trip in Germany near the end of World War II when he saw information on swept-wing jets and shared the information with Boeing. This allowed the engineers at Boeing to use the engines to their full extent and create a groundbreaking plane in the form of the B-47. This was the plane that carried the Mark 15, and this type of plane has the dubious honor of being involved in the loss of one off the coast of Savannah, Georgia in 1958. During a training flight off the east coast, a B-47 and an F-86 fighter plane had a mid-air collision during a simulated combat scenario. In the accident, the fighter was destroyed, and the bomber was left with a damaged fuel tank and engine. In an article on the accident, Jalopnik states that the bomber couldn't successfully land with the bomb on board, so they dropped it into the ocean. An important part of the story, though, is that the Mark 15 that was dropped off the coast of Georgia was in training configuration. This means that there was no nuclear material on board, and thus it was the same as dropping a conventional explosive. So, you probably shouldn't worry too much because the United States Air Force basically just lost a large bundle of TNT. That means Georgia hopefully won't become an irradiated wasteland anytime soon. I was skeptical the first time I heard about the Spanish silver mine in East Tennessee. My Uncle Jim was a master storyteller and had entertained us as kids with any number of tall tales. When he told me about the mine, however, I was no longer a kid, and it was clear that this was no tall tale, but a bit of family history he could recite by heart. Nevertheless, I'd never read anything about a Spanish presence in East Tennessee, and the whole story seemed a bit far-fetched. From the website, AppalachianMagazine.com, a story by F. Andrew Doughty, 17th Century Ghost Mines of the Appalachians. Jim told me that when the first settlers came to Hamblin County, they found a pile of tailings from an old mine site east of present-day Morristown. There were mature trees growing in the tailings, indicating the mine had been worked before 1700. There were no obvious signs of minerals, and the find was largely forgotten. Sometime before World War I, an elderly resident of the county emerged with a story that generated new interest. According to his account, when he was a boy, an old Spaniard living with his family told him that the site had been a Spanish silver mine. The Spaniard had discovered an account of the mine in archives in Spain and had come to Tennessee to try to reopen it. Before he could do so, however, he lost his savings in the Civil War and had never again been in position to buy the site. The boy the Spaniard confided in grew to be a man, but he ultimately realized that he too would never have the money to open the mine. He therefore revealed the story to my grandfather in the hope that he might be able to do something with it. My grandfather, A. H. Dougherty, was excited by the prospect. At the time, he and his brother were successful entrepreneurs in the furniture business. He had prospected for zinc in East Tennessee and searched the legendary Swift and Mundy Silver Mine in Southwest Virginia. He quickly gathered together a small group of investors, made a deal with the landowner, and hired some men to excavate the old mine. After clearing away the tailings, they found a vertical shaft at the bottom, a tunnel framed in walnut timbers. Before proceeding further, however, the workers claimed they heard haints, ghosts, in the mine. They climbed out of the shaft, and my grandfather could not persuade them or anyone else to re-enter it. A mining engineer who later looked at the site concluded that it would cost a fortune to reopen the mine, and my grandfather reluctantly abandoned the venture. I was intrigued by the story, but it wasn't until many years later that I had the time to research the old mine. I contacted the landowner in 2015. He had heard about the mining effort from the previous owner and had no further details, but was kind enough to show me the site. It's a bit underwhelming. There are no ruins of buildings or Spanish swords or other artifacts lying about. There's a hole, however, mostly filled in that appears to be the remnant of mine shaft. There are also various mounds of rock and dirt that reflect someone's excavation efforts, but it is not clear whether they were made by the Spanish or my grandfather. Despite the obvious activity, I found no sign of color or other mineralization in the rocks there, and we found no traces of silver or other metals in soil samples we collected and sent off to a lab. While nothing I found confirmed that the site had been a Spanish mine, it piqued my interest. As I researched the subject further, I found that my mine was only one of several in the Appalachians found by early settlers. The most striking evidence was in Cherokee County, North Carolina, where beginning in the 19th century as many as 11 old mine shafts were uncovered along the Valley River. Trees growing at the mouth of the shafts indicated that they had been worked no later than the 1650s, and various artifacts were recovered from the shafts, including a windlass, axes, a pick, and a pistol with a Spanish coat of arms. The Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy displays a 16th century halberd that was recovered from the area. Old mine shafts have also been recorded in other parts of North Carolina. In 1875, workers who were developing a mica mine northwest of Franklin broke through into an old shaft that contained wrought iron tools that appeared to be Spanish in origin. Early settlers near Little Switzerland also found a mysterious shaft, which they called the Horse Stomp Mine. It extended at least 70 to 80 feet deep and was intercepted by a 700-foot-long tunnel dug in from the side of the mountain. Other sites contain evidence of placer mining operations. In the 1740s, the first settlers in Lincolnton, North Carolina, found a dam made of well-cut stone and the remains of a wooden trough apparently built to wash gold from stream sediments. Similarly, in 1834, at the height of the Georgia Gold Rush, operators digging a canal for a placer mining operation discovered a number of short log walls buried in the sediments of Duke's Creek, The logs had been hewn by sharp metal tools and the trees growing in the sediment above them were more than 200 years old. The discoverers thought the walls might have been the foundations of a subterranean village. It seems more plausible that they were supports for a flume for washing gravel, evidence perhaps that the 19th century operators were not the first folks to seek gold at the site. There are various other rumors and legends of mines that are less well documented. The first settlers in Webster, North Carolina, reportedly found tunnels under the town and were informed by native tribes that they were made by white men many years earlier. There are rumors of a silver mine near Hot Springs, North Carolina, and of a Spanish silver mine on Coronaca Creek, northeast of Greenwood, South Carolina, neither of which have been located. There's even a 1858 newspaper report that an old silver mine had been reopened in Hancock County, Alabama, but no further evidence that such a mine actually existed. In addition to the physical evidence, the historical record contains a number of reports of mysterious white men in the mountains. Spanish authorities in St. Augustine received a number of them from their Indian contacts between 1597 to 1628. In 1602, the Spanish governor sent a soldier into the interior to investigate, and in 1604 even requested that the king send him a hundred arquebusiers for an expedition to contact mysterious civilized people living west of the mountains. Between 1624 and 1628, the Spanish sent five small expeditions into the interior to investigate similar rumors. None of these expeditions were able to proceed deep into the interior, but officials were convinced the intruders were English or Dutch explorers from the Jamestown colony. While the Spanish suspected that the English were exploring in the Appalachians, the English assumed that they were Spanish. In 1648, the Virginia governor received reports from native tribes of Spaniards on donkeys in the mountains. In 1654, Francis Yeardley reported that a wealthy Spaniard was living with the Tuscaroras in North Carolina. In 1670, the explorer John Lederer halted his expedition into western North Carolina after being told by Indian contacts that a powerful nation of bearded men lay two and a half days to the southwest. He assumed they were Spanish, who would be hostile to his expedition. In 1674, Abraham Wood conveyed reports from the Native Americans of bearded white people apparently living on the Tennessee River. In his 1690 exploration into the mountains, James Moore reportedly reached a point where he was within 20 miles of Spaniards engaged in mining and smelting with bellows and furnaces. While it is possible that unknown English or even French miners were active in the Appalachians, it seems more likely that these guys were Spanish. The 1566-68 Juan Pardo expeditions generated intense interest in precious metals and gems in the mountains, and a number of veterans of the expeditions remained in Florida for decades afterwards. Pardo also left approximately 80 men stationed at four small forts in the interior and it is possible that some survived the destruction of those outposts by native tribes. Of course, the obvious question is, if the miners were Spanish, why weren't authorities in San Augustine aware of their actions? Governance of New Spain was famously compartmentalized, and one possibility is that they were being supported by officials elsewhere. Alternatively, these may have been rogue operations carried out in secrecy to avoid paying the Quinto Real, the 20% royalty on precious metals reserved for the king. Whoever the miners were, they apparently came into conflict with tribes in the region. According to native traditions, the Spaniards who worked the mines along the Valley River were killed by the Indians due to concerns that their success might lead more white men to the region. Interestingly, during the 1900 gold rush in the area, operators recovered a half-bushel of lead bullets from their sluice boxes, conceivably evidence of such a battle. Similarly, at the Lincolnton site, the Cherokee chief Adakulakula informed an early settler that 1,000 moons previously there had been a battle there between his ancestors and the white men, and that the fallen from both sides were buried along nearby Clark's Creek. Ultimately, mining operations appeared to cease by the end of the 17th century. If the miners were Spanish, this was probably due to the growing influence of English traders who began operating out of Charleston, South Carolina, after that city's founding in 1670. These traders quickly established alliances with southeastern tribes, and by the 1680s, the Spanish missions in Florida were coming under attack by tribes affiliated with the English. St. Augustine itself was burned by South Carolinians led by James Moore in 1702. Much of the evidence of these activities is anecdotal, and we may never know the full story of the mines and the men who worked them. Some day, perhaps in a dusty archive somewhere, a previously unknown manuscript will yield up more information. Also, archaeologists, armed with modern tools, may be able to decipher some details from the evidence they left behind. Furthermore, There's no reason to believe that the sites identified so far are the only remnants these miners left behind. Someday, in an isolated cove or on a leaf-covered hillside, a hunter or hiker may literally stumble across another clue. Finally, as I learned from my Uncle Jim, we shouldn't discount the tales told to us by our ancestors. Further clues to these ghost mines and miners may lie in the oral traditions of other Appalachian families. And now, listeners, a story from the website, The Lowstoft Chronicle. The story is titled, Letter Number Six, The Old Schoolhouse, and this is written by John Bach. My dear grandson, I hope this letter finds you well. Just for kicks this morning, I tried to call your mother. I had to call collect because the nurses don't let me keep none of my own money. Some of the other patients sneak around with change and such. Some even keep some of the soft money stuffed in pockets and other places, but I decided to do what I'm told. Anyway, I heard your mother's sweet voice. I listened hard. The operator asked her if she would accept my call, but she said no. Someday, you'll understand. I did listen hard, though, to try and hear you coo or babble or something, but I didn't hear nothing but your mama's sweet voice telling me no. So, I'll settle for yet another letter. I got to thinking about you just being a baby, but how, before long, you'll be going to school and learning your letters and numbers, and then, a while after that, you'll be able to read this for yourself. That got me thinking about when I went to school. Sure wish I'd done better, especially with my writing. Then, I remembered the old schoolhouse my folks went to, and something that happened to me and Bud Pelter at that schoolhouse one day many many years ago. So here's the tellin'. By the time I come along, in fact all my siblings too, we had to go to school there in town in Painted Gate. But before that, all the kids in our part of the country went to an old country school. I don't recall the name of it, if it had a name at all. My mom and dad went there, and so did most of my aunts and uncles. I even had a cousin go there, but only because he was so much older than me. His name was Gardner Campbell on my mom's side. He was older than my mother, his own aunt, and died for she did too. I always thought that the oddest thing against all of nature in my book. Anyway, that old school, the one that all the old folks had gone to, was abandoned after they moved all the kids into town to the school where I went. No one claimed the building and the county never tore it down. Needless to say, it started falling apart and was a favorite place for kids to go out and visit. Stories about it being haunted sprung up some time in there. By the time I came along, the old schoolhouse was pretty decrepit, and they said a ghost lingered around there, and sometimes you could see him at the twilight of a day. They said once it got dark, the place was so scary that even that ghost went somewhere else, but he would, in fact, show up at times at twilight. Now, that part about him being scared at night don't make much sense, at least as far as my understanding of ghosts but it kind of heightened the story a bit, I guess. Leastways, that's the way I heard it. There was another side of it, too, and that was that the schoolhouse was a place for bums to stay in on their way through the county. There was a short line back then that cut through that same gap, and I guess some hobos would drop off around there, use it a time or two just to stay in for a night to get out of the weather. I never really put too much stock in ghosts, though I might have run smack dab into one one time. I can't rightly tell. I'll tell you about it, and you can decide one day if I did or not. See, one day, Bud Pelter and I were sitting around, bored. We had done all of our chores, and we were kind of rustling around for something to fill our time. We had both been out to the schoolhouse before, but always during broad daylight. It was an interesting place, basically just one big room with a fireplace and chimney at the far end. There were a few desks left over from way back when, but that was about it. All the windows had been broken or shot out, and there were some critters had been in there. You could tell that. The old stove my parents told me had been there, it was gone, as was the big old desk they said the teacher had. We went out there this one day, and I suggested to Bud, hey, why don't we play bank robbery? I'll be in there signing up some big deal, and you come looking around like you're casing the place, and then you leave and come back and stick up the place. I'll try and fight you off to save my customers.' what say bud was all for it he generally liked being the bad guy and he was pretty good at it too so i went in and buttoned my shirt clear up to the top and wrapped an old torn piece of curtain around my neck pretending i was wearing a tie and i got some old boards and set them out on one of the desks like they was important contracts i turned another desk around backwards and sat on it made me look all important in my own office so to speak bud he looked around the place and acted like he was some high and mighty customer I heard him tell someone imaginary that he was not one to stand in line waiting for nobody and that he was ready to deal but that he got to go out to his car and get some important papers first I looked around then like I was the king of the world and I started thinking that maybe banking wouldn't be too bad a way to make a wage when I got older especially if it was just about sitting around yakking and trading papers back and forth beats other things a man might have to do So I sat there and wondered when Bud was going to do his thing and break in and let the adventure begin. And I waited and I waited. I pictured all kinds of high-class folks standing there in the lobby waiting to see me after I finished with this one customer I was dealing with. Finally, I started to think Bud found something else to do when I saw this kind of shadow go across one of the windows. Just for a quick second, so I thought, oh, there he is, still casing the place. So I went on about my pretend business with my pretend customer. Little one, as I write this, my hair still stands up on my neck and arms, and I can feel the exact same cold chills down my sides and tingle behind my eyes that I felt that very day this took place. I was sitting there, and just then, this man walked in on me. A real man. He was dressed real shabby, kind of like a hobo, and he had his hat in his hands holding it up across his stomach with both hands like he was pleading for something almost and he just stood there and looked around and then he looked at me his eyes looked all sad and kind of watery like maybe he'd been crying my eyes must have been big as silver dollars I didn't know what to do my first thought was it's the schoolhouse ghost I looked at him but I couldn't see through him though and I always figured you could see right through a real ghost I tried to say something, don't remember what, and nothing would come out. I was dry as dry, couldn't speak a lick. There wasn't but one door out, and he was closer to it than I was, so I realized I might have to make for a window. Just as soon as I had that thought, and was gathering up my wits to make for the closest one, that man said, You're not a ghost, shook his head, turned back the way he came in, and left. I heard myself say, no, sir, real weak and squeaky like. Must have been getting a little nerve back seeing as he was leaving. So then I'm wondering who this man was and where was Bud. I completely forgot all about my customers. It made me realize, sometime later, that you just don't know how you're gonna act in a real situation. I always pictured myself the hero, able to fight off a bank robber, if I was a banker, that is, or maybe even if I was just a customer myself. But you never really know till it happens. When a man walked in that day, took me by surprise, I didn't have the strength of a kitten. Well, I sat there and made myself count to fifty. I was afraid he'd come right back in and strangle me just for meanness. I kept my eye on my escape window, too. I finally allowed myself to say, ''Bud!'' kind of half-loud, but I didn't hear an answer. So I got up and peered out of my escape window to see that man walking down the road towards town. I'd never seen him before, and he seemed even less like a ghost, out there in the sunlight then what he said came back to me that I wasn't a ghost and I just couldn't figure it out then I heard Bud over on the other side of the wall under a window just bust out laughing well he'd been out there the whole time listening in but he wouldn't tell me particularly where he had been or nothing I didn't find out till later when we was hidden up in the woods which I'll explain directly that he had set it up seemed like he had been outside starting to case the place when he saw this man coming down the road and had the grand idea to have some fun with me. The man was evidently a hobo, and Bud went up to him and asked the man could he help him. The man had said yes, so Bud told him he thought there was a ghost in the schoolhouse and he was too scared to go in and see. Would the man go in? Oh, Bud had thought that would be great fun. The man had said that he would. So he took off his hat, because he was going indoors evidently, and that's when he came in, saw me, and made the statement about me not being a ghost. So Bud laughed a little more. I was still kind of shaken up, but getting my bearings back, when we both looked up, and, oh this is tingly again, that man, the same one, was standing there inside the schoolhouse, looking out the window at the both of us. He was crying too just looking out at us and crying man we took a look at him then looked at each other and we both just tore out of there towards the woods i bet no one could have caught us i was leading then bud was leading then i got up in front didn't neither one of us feel a bit tired running we went all the way up into the woods and over a ridge and down in this little holler where stamp creek sometimes ran when it got to raining too bad we stopped just for a moment We were both just trembling inside and out. We figured, kind of simultaneously, that we weren't real comfortable just yet with the lack of distance between us and that man, so we started up to running again till we got up over the next ridge and down the other side where it leveled out. I felt like I could have run to the next county. But we finally stopped and fell down and caught our breath. We done seen the schoolhouse ghost, Bodine, Bud says. All I could say was... Mm "'Mm-hmm. "'I still didn't think that man was rightly a ghost, "'cause like I said, I couldn't see through him. "'But I was sure spooked thinking how and why "'he got himself back in the building "'while we was standing there talking about him. "'We both were lying there, looking up into the trees. "'That old sun was still up about a third of the way. "'Wasn't near twilight, so we couldn't understand it. "'I remember we got real quiet, not knowing what to do, "'and after a while, Bud said, "'I ain't never going back there, Bodine.' Never. I agreed wholeheartedly with him. And at that time, I meant it. I really did. I wasn't meaning to lie to my friend. I didn't know then that I would go back. That place held a lot of mystery, so when I was looking for a place to bury a secret years later, well, naturally, I thought of that old schoolhouse. I'll have to tell you more about that later. There's a nurse here don't like me, and it looks like she's coming up on her shift. I ain't going to let her read this, so I'll tuck it up under my mattress real quick. I love you, little one. Love, Granddaddy Hollis. One night in June 2014, Derek Broadus had just finished an evening of painting at his new home, in Westfield, New Jersey, when he went outside to check the mail. Derek and his wife, Maria, had closed on the six-bedroom house at 657 Boulevard three days earlier and were doing some renovations before they moved in, so there wasn't much in the mail except a few bills and a white card-shaped envelope. It was addressed in thick, clunky handwriting to the new owner, and the typed note inside began warmly dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. From the website, thecut.com, a story by Reeves Weideman. The story is entitled, The Haunting of a Dream House. For the Broadduses, buying 657 Boulevard had fulfilled a dream. Maria was raised in Westfield, and the house was a few blocks from her childhood home. Derek grew up working class in Maine, then moved his way up the ladder in an insurance company in Manhattan to become a senior vice president with a salary large enough to afford the $1.3 million house. The Broadduses had bought 657 Boulevard just after Derek celebrated his 40th birthday, and their three kids were already debating which of the house's fireplaces Santa Claus would use. But as Derek kept reading the letter from his new neighbor, it took a turn. How did you end up here? The writer asked. Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? The letter went on. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, And my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out." The author's reconnaissance had apparently already begun. The letter identified the Broaddus' Honda minivan as well as the workers renovating the home. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be, the person wrote. Tsk, tisk tisk, Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. Earlier in the week, Derek and Maria had gone to the house and chatted with their new neighbors while their children, who were 5, 8, and 10 years old, ran around the backyard with several kids from the neighborhood. The letter writer seemed to have noticed you have children i have seen them so far i think there are three that i have counted the anonymous correspondent wrote before asking if there were more on the way do you need to fill the house with the young blood i requested better for me was your old house too small for the growing family or was it greed to bring me your children once i know their names i will call to them and draw them to me The envelope had no return address. Who am I? The person wrote. There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I'm in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I'm in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. The letter concluded with a suggestion that this message would not be the last. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. Followed by a signature typed in a cursive font. The Watcher. It was after 10 p.m. and Derek Broadus was alone. He raced around the house, turning off lights so no one could see inside, then called the Westfield Police Department. An officer came to the house, read the letter, and said, What the fuck is this? He asked Derek if he had enemies and recommended moving a piece of construction equipment from the back porch in case the watcher tried to toss it through a window. Derek rushed back to his wife and kids, who were living at their old home elsewhere in Westfield. At night, Derek and Maria wrote an email to John and Andrea Woods, the couple who sold them 657 Boulevard, to ask if they had any idea who the watcher might be or why he or she had written... I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. Andrea Woods replied the next morning. A few days before moving out, the Woodses had also received a letter from the Watcher. The note had been odd, she said, and made similar mention to the Watcher's family observing the house over time, but Andrea said she and her husband had never received anything like it in their 23 years in the house and had thrown the letter away without much thought. That day, the Woodses went with Maria to the police station, where Detective Leonard Lugo told her not to tell anyone about the letters, including her new neighbors, most of whom she had never met, and all of whom were now suspects. The Broadduses spent the coming weeks on high alert. Derek canceled a work trip, and whenever Maria took the kids to their new house, she would yell their names if they wandered into a corner of the yard. When Derek gave a tour of the renovation to a couple on the block, he froze when the wife said, it'll be nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood. The Broaddus' general contractor arrived one morning to find a heavy sign he'd hammered into the front yard had been ripped out overnight. Two weeks after the letter arrived, Maria stopped by the house to look at some paint samples and check the mail. She recognized the thick black lettering on a card-shaped envelope and called the police. Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard, the watcher wrote. The workers have been busy, and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time, they will. This time, the watcher had addressed Derek and Maria directly, misspelling their names as Mr. and Mrs. Braddis. Had the watcher been close enough to hear one of the Braddus' contractors addressing them? The watcher boasted of having learned a lot about the family in the preceding weeks, especially about their children. The letter identified the Broaddus' three kids by birth order and by their nicknames, the ones Maria had been yelling. "'I'm pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought me,' it said. "'You certainly say their names often.' The letter asked about one child in particular whom the writer had seen using an easel inside an enclosed porch." Is she the artist in the family?" The letter continued. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement, or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic, or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the Watcher, and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on, and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Brattus family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving-in day. You know I will be watching. Derek and Maria stopped bringing their kids to the house. They were no longer sure when or if they would move in. Several weeks later, a third letter arrived. Where have you gone to, the watcher wrote. 657 Boulevard is missing you. Many Westfield residents compare their town to Mayberry, the idyllic setting for the Andy Griffith Show, the kind of place where a new neighbor might greet you with a welcoming note. Westfield is 45 minutes from New York and a bit too slow for singles, meaning the town's 30,000 residents are largely well-to-do families. This year, Bloomberg ranked Westfield the 99th richest city in America, but only the 18th wealthiest in New Jersey, And in 2014, when the watcher struck, the website Neighborhood Scout named it the country's 30th safest town. The most pressing local issues of late, according to the residents, have been the temporary closure of Trader Joe's after a roof collapse and the rampant scourge of unconstitutional policing, by which they mean aggressive parking enforcement. Westfield is 86% white. One activity all locals recognized as treacherous is trying to buy a house. There's a lot of money and a lot of ego, one resident, who requested anonymity before discussing Westfield real estate, told me. I've seen bidden wars where friends lost by $300,000. The Broaddus' house was on the boulevard, a wide, tree-lined street with some of the more desirable homes in town, as the watcher had noted. The boulevard used to be the street to live on. You made it if you lived on the boulevard. Built in 1905, 657 Boulevard was perhaps the grandest home on the block, and when the Woodses put it on the market, they had received multiple offers above their asking price. That led the Broadduses to initially suspect that the Watcher might be somewhat upset over losing out on the house. But the Woodses said one interested buyer had backed out after a bad medical diagnosis, while another had already found a different home. In an email to the Broadduses, Andrea Woods proposed another theory. Would the mention of the contractor trucks and your children suggest that it was someone in the neighborhood? The letters did indicate proximity. They had been processed in Kearney, the U.S. Postal Service's distribution center in northern New Jersey. The first was postmarked June 4th before the sale was public. The Woodses had never put up a for sale sign, and only a day after the contractors arrived. The renovations were mostly interior, and people who live nearby say they didn't notice an unusual commotion, even from the jackhammering in the basement. When Derek and Maria walked Detective Lugo around the house, they showed him that the easel on the porch was hidden from the street by vegetation, making it difficult to see unless someone was behind the house or right next door. A few days after the first letter, Maria and Derek went to a barbecue across the street, welcoming them and another new homeowner to the block. The Broadduses hadn't told anyone about the watcher, as the police had instructed, and found themselves scanning the party for clues while keeping tabs on their kids, who ran guilelessly through a crowd that made up much of the suspect pool. "'We kept screaming at them to stay close,' Maria said. "'People must have thought we were crazy.' At one point, Derek was chatting with John Schmidt, who lived two doors down, when Schmidt told him about the Langfords, who lived between them. Peggy Langford was in her 90s, and several of her adult children, all in their 60s, lived with her. The family was a bit odd, Schmidt said, but harmless. He described one of the younger Langfords, Michael, who didn't work and had a beard like Ernest Hemingway, as kind of a Boo Radley character. Derek thought the case was solved. The Langford House was right next to the easel on the porch. The family had lived there since the 1960s when the watcher's father, the letters said, had begun observing 657 Boulevard. Richard Langford, the family patriarch, had died 12 years earlier, and the current watcher claimed to have been on the job for the better part of two decades. When the Broadduses told Lugo about the family, he said he already knew, and a week after the first letter arrived, he brought Michael Langford to police headquarters for an interview. Michael denied knowing anything about the letters, but the Broadduses say that Lugo told them that the narrative of what he said matched things mentioned in the letters. This isn't CSI Westfield, Lugo later told the Broadduses. When the wife is dead, it's the husband. But there wasn't much hard evidence, and after a few weeks, the police chief told the broaduses that, short of an admission, there wasn't much the department could do. This is someone who threatened my kids, and the police are saying, probably nothing's going to happen, Derek said. Probably isn't good enough for me. After the second letter, Derek told the cops that if they didn't take care of the situation, they would have a different kind of case on their hands. This person attacked my family, and where I'm from, if you do that, you get your ass beat. Derek told me. Frustrated, the Broadduses began their own investigation. Derek became especially obsessed. He set up webcams in 657 Boulevard and spent nights crouched in the dark, watching to see if anyone was watching the house at close range. Maria thought I was crazy, he told me recently at a coffee shop in Manhattan, where he covered a table with documents relating to the case, including copies of the letters which he and his wife had shared with only a few friends and family members. He showed me a map displaying when each of 657's neighbors had moved in. The Langfords were the only ones there since the 60s, with overlays marking possible sight lines for the easel and a circle for approximate range of earshot to estimate who might have heard Maria yelling their kids' names. Only a few homes fit both criteria. The Broadduses also turned to several experts. They employed a private investigator who staked out the neighborhood and ran background checks on the Langfords, but didn't find anything noteworthy. Derek reached out to a former FBI agent who served as the inspiration for Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. They were on a high school board of trustees together, and they also hired Robert Lenahan, another former FBI agent, to conduct a threat assessment. Lenahan recognized several old-fashioned ticks in the letters that pointed to an older writer. The envelope was addressed to M. M. Brattus, the salutations included the day's weather, warm and humid, sunny and cool for a summer day, and the sentences had double spaces between them. The letters had a certain literary panache, which suggested a voracious reader and a surprising lack of profanity given the level of anger which Lena had thought meant a less macho writer. Maybe, he wondered, the Watcher had seen The Watcher starring Keanu Reeves as a serial killer who stalks the detective trying to catch him. Lenehan didn't think The Watcher was likely to act on the threats, but the letters had enough typos and errors to imply a certain erraticism. The first letter was dated Tuesday, June 4th, but that day was a Wednesday. There was also a seething anger directed at the wealthy in particular, The watcher was upset by new money moving into town. Are you one of those Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield and by the Broaddus' relatively modest renovations? The house is crying from all of the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard when I ran from room to room, imagining the life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old and so did my father, but he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Lena had recommended looking into former housekeepers or their descendants, Perhaps the watcher was jealous that the Broaduses had bought a home that the writer couldn't afford. But the focus remained on the Langfords. In cooperation with Westfield police, the Broaduses sent a letter to the Langfords announcing plans to tear down the house, hoping to prompt a response. Nothing happened. Detective Lugo brought Michael Langford in for a second interview, but got nowhere, and his sister, Abby, accused the police of harassing their family. Eventually, the Broaddises hired Lee Levitt, a lawyer who met with several members of the Langford family, as well as their attorney, to show them the letters, along with photos explaining how their home was one of the few vantage points from which the easel could be seen. The meeting grew tense, Levitt told me, and the Langfords insisted Michael was innocent. One night, Derek had a dream in which he confronted Peggy, the eldest Langford, and demanded she build an eight foot fence between the properties. Maria was having other kinds of dreams. One night, she woke up to an especially vivid one about a man who lived nearby. He was wearing these boots and carrying a pitchfork and calling to the kids, and I couldn't get to them in time, Maria said. She thought almost anyone could be the watcher, which made daily life feel like navigating a labyrinth of threats. She probed the faces of shoppers at Trader Joe's to see if they looked strangely at her kids and spent hours googling anyone who seemed suspicious. There were reasons to consider other suspects. For one thing, the police spoke to Michael before the second letter was sent, which would make sending two more especially reckless. The Broadduses say that Lugo told them they wouldn't receive any more letters after he spoke to Michael. Then there was the rest of the neighborhood to consider. The private investigator found two child sex offenders within a few blocks. Bill Woodward, the Brodis' house painter, had also noticed something strange. The couple behind 657 Boulevard kept a pair of lawn chairs strangely close to the Brodis' property. One day, I was looking out the window and I saw this older guy sitting in one of the chairs, Woodward told me. He wasn't facing his house, he was facing the Brodis's. But by the end of 2014, the investigation had stalled. The watcher had left no digital trail no fingerprints, and no way to place someone at the scene of a crime that could have been hatched from pretty much any mailbox in northern New Jersey. The letters could be read closely for possible clues or dismissed as the nonsensical ramblings of a sociopath. It was like trying to find a needle in a haystack, said Scott Krauss, who helped investigate the case for the Union County Prosecutor's Office. In December, the Westfield police told the Broadduses they had run out of options, Derek showed the letters to his priest, who agreed to bless the house. The renovations to 657 Boulevard, including a new alarm system, were finished within a few months, but the idea of moving in filled the Broadduses with overwhelming anxiety. Could they let their kids play outside or have friends over? Would they get a new letter every week? Derek priced out trained German shepherds and posted a job on a website for military veterans. All you have to do is work out in the backyard every day. But the Broadduses hadn't bought 657 to feel bunkered in a fortress. At the end of the day, it came down to, what are you willing to risk, Maria told me. We weren't going to put our kids in harm's way. Derek had been responding to occasional alarms at the house, sometimes in the middle of the night, bringing a knife with him just in case. They were so joyous about their new home, and then within days, they were petrified "'Bill Woodward, the painter, said. "'I'm a stranger, and Maria was crying and shaking in my arms. "'It didn't help that the watcher seemed to be getting more and more unhinged. "'657 Boulevard is turning on me. "'It is coming after me. "'I don't understand why. "'What spell did you cast on it? "'It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. "'I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. "'It is not in charge of me.' I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. The Broadduses had sold their home, so they moved in with Maria's parents while continuing to pay the mortgage and property taxes on 657 Boulevard. "'I had to do things like shovel the driveway,' Derek said. "'Just picture that little indignity. I'd go at five in the morning, then come back and do it again at my in-laws.' They told only a handful of friends about the letters, which left others to ask why they weren't moving in—legal issues, they said—and wonder if they were getting divorced.' They fought constantly and started taking medication to fall asleep. I was a depressed wreck, Derek said. Maria decided to see a therapist after a routine doctor's visit that began with the question how are you caused her to burst into tears. The therapist said she was suffering post-traumatic stress that wouldn't go away until they got rid of the house. Six months after the letters arrived, the Broadduses decided to sell 657 Boulevard. They initially listed it for more than they paid to reflect the renovations they'd done. But few worlds are more gossipy than suburban New Jersey real estate, and rumors had already begun to swirl about why the house sat empty. One broker emailed to say her client loved it, but that there are so many unsubstantiated rumors flying around, ranging from sexual predator to stalker, that they needed to know more. The Broadduses sent a partial disclosure mentioning the letters to interested buyers and told Coldwell Banker, their realtor, that they intended to show the full letters to anyone whose offer was accepted. Several preliminary bids came in well below the asking price, but the Broadduses weren't ready to take such a financial hit and only wanted to share the letters with likely buyers. No one got that far, even after they lowered the price. A Coldwell agent who hadn't read the letters told them in an email that they were being unnecessarily forthcoming. My friend got horrible threatening letters about her dog barking, and she didn't think to disclose. But the Broadduses insisted. I don't know how you lived through what we did and think you could do it to somebody else, Derek said. Derek and Maria thought about what they would have done had the previous owners told them about their letter from the Watcher. The Woodses, both retired scientists, told the Broadduses that they remembered the letter they received as more strange than threatening, thanking them for taking care of the house. They say they never had any issues. We certainly never felt watched, Andrea told them. They rarely even locked the doors. But the Broadduses felt the name alone was ominous enough to merit mentioning to a new family moving in, and on June 2, 2015, a year after buying 657 Boulevard, they filed a legal complaint against the Woodses, Arguing that the Woodses should have disclosed the letter, just as they had the fact that water sometimes got in the basement. The Broaddises say they hoped to reach a quiet settlement. Their kids still didn't know about the Watcher, and their lawyer assured them that at most a small legal newswire might pick up the story. We do some creepy stories, Tamron Hall said on the Today Show a few weeks later. This might be top 10 creepy. A local reporter had found the complaint, which included snippets of the watchers' menacing threats, and after a belated attempt by the Broaduses to seal it, the story went viral. News trucks camped out at 657 Boulevard, and one local reporter set up a lawn chair to conduct his own watch. The Broaduses got more than 300 media requests, but with advice from a crisis management consultant referred by one of Derek's colleagues, they decided not to speak publicly to spare their kids even more attention. They vacated Westfield and went to a friend's beach house. They didn't find much peace. Maria's grandfather had a heart attack, and the friend they were staying with had a grandma seizure. Eventually, Derek and Maria sat down with their children to explain the real reason they hadn't moved into their home. The kids had plenty of questions. Who is the Watcher? Where does this person live? Why is this person angry with us? To which Derek and Maria had few answers. Can you imagine having that conversation with a five-year-old, Derek told me? Your town isn't as safe as you think it is, and there's a boogeyman obsessed with you? The Watcher was a real-life mystery to solve. A commenter on NJ.com suggested ground-penetrating radar to find whatever the Watcher claimed was in the walls. The home inspector had already looked and told Derek the only issue was the aging home's lack of insulation. A group of Reddit users obsessed over Google Maps Street View, which showed a car parked in front of 657 that one user thought had a man holding a camera in the driver's seat. Others, more rationally, saw a pixelated glare. The range of proposed subjects included a jilted mistress, a spurned realtor, a local high schooler's creative writing project, guerrilla marketing for a horror movie, and mall goths having fun. Some people just thought the Broadduses were wimps for not moving in. I would never let this sicko stop me from moving into a house, never back down from a terrorist, which irked the Broadduses. None of them have read the letters or had their children threatened by someone they didn't know, Derek said. To decide whether this person's only nuts enough to write these letters and not do something, what if something did happen? In Westfield, people were on edge. Lori Clancy, who teaches piano lessons in her house behind 657 Boulevard, told me one of her students came for a lesson shortly after news of the watcher broke and started bawling. She was terrified to walk down the boulevard, Clancy said. At the first Westfield Town Council meeting after the letters became public, Mayor Andy Skibitsky assured the public that the watcher hadn't been heard from in a year and that even though the police hadn't solved the case, their investigation had been exhaustive. This was news to 657's neighbors, most of whom had never heard from the cops. "'We are confounded as to how a thorough investigation can be conducted without talking to all the neighbors with proximity to the home,' several of them wrote in a letter to the local paper. Under the glare of national attention, Baron Chambliss, a veteran detective in the Westfield Police, was asked to look at the case. "'The Broadduses are victims, and I don't think they got the support they needed,' Chambliss, who has since retired, told me recently of the initial investigation. Chambliss knew his colleagues had looked closely at Michael Langford. According to his brother, Sandy Langford, Michael had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young man. He sometimes spooked newcomers to the neighborhood when he did strange things, like walk through their backyard or peek in the windows of homes that were being renovated. But those who knew him told me that the odd things he did were mostly just unusual neighborly kindnesses. He goes out and gets the newspapers for me every morning, said John Schmidt, who lives next door. People who had known Michael for decades told me they didn't think he was capable of writing the letters. As Chambliss looked into the case, he discovered something surprising. Investigators had eventually conducted a DNA analysis on one of the envelopes and determined that the DNA belonged to a woman. Chambliss decided to look more closely at Abby Langford, Michael's sister, who worked as a real estate agent. Was she upset about missing a commission right next door? She also worked at the local Lord & Taylor, and Chambliss coordinated with a security guard there to nab her plastic water bottle during a shift. But Chambliss says the DNA sample was not a match. Not long after, the prosecutor's office gave Derek and Maria some unexpected news. They wouldn't say why or how, but they had ruled out the Langfords as suspects the Broaduses were stunned. They had recently told the prosecutors that they planned to file civil charges against the Langfords and wondered if the prosecutors were lying to prevent the story from blowing up again. My family moved to the boulevard in 1961 and we never caused a problem for anybody, Sandy Langford told me. This guy gets all these letters and all of a sudden people are pointing fingers. Left without a suspect, the Broaduses reopened their personal investigation. They were still coy about sharing too much with their neighbors, who remained in the pool of suspects, but spent an afternoon walking the block with a picture of the watcher's handwritten envelope. They hoped someone might recognize the writing from a Christmas card, but the only notable encounter came when an older man who lived behind 657 said his son joked that the watcher sounded a little bit like him. A neighbor across the street was the CEO of Kroll, the security firm, and the Broadduses hired the company to look for handwriting matches, but they found nothing. They also hired Robert Leonard, a renowned forensic linguist and former member of the band Sha Na Na, who didn't find any noteworthy overlap when he scoured the local online forums for similarities to the Watcher's writing, although he did think the author might watch Game of Thrones. Jon Snow is one of the Watchers on the wall. At one point, Derek persuaded a friend in tech... To connect him to a hacker willing to try breaking into Wi Fi networks in the neighborhood to look for incriminating documents, but doing so turned out to be both illegal and more difficult than the movies made it seem, so they didn't go through with it. Chambliss and the Westfield police were also back at square one. The cops asked Andrea Woods for a DNA sample and interviewed her 21 year old son, who was surprised to find that he suddenly seemed to be a suspect. A year after the fact, it was hard to find fresh leads and the initial police canvas had been so porous that it had missed a significant clue. Around the same time that the Broadduses had received their first letter, another family on the boulevard got a similar note from the watcher. The parents of that family had lived in their house for years and their kids were grown, so they threw the letter away, just as the Woodses had. But after the news broke, one of their children posted about it on Facebook then deleted the post. When the investigators spoke to the family, they confirmed that the letter had been similar to the Broaddus's, but its existence only made the case more confusing. There wasn't a whole lot to go on, Chambliss told me. One night, Chambliss and a partner were sitting in the back of a van parked on the boulevard, watching the house through a pair of binoculars. Around 11 p.m., a car stopped in front of the house long enough for Chambliss to grow suspicious. He said he traced the car to a young woman in a nearby town whose boyfriend lived on the same block as 657. The woman told Chameless her boyfriend was into some really dark video games, including, in Chameless's memory, one in which he was playing as a specific character, the Watcher. As for the female DNA, Chameless figured the girlfriend or someone else could have helped. The boyfriend was living elsewhere at the time, but Chambliss says he agreed to come in for an interview on two separate occasions. He didn't show up either time. Chambliss didn't have enough evidence to compel him to appear, and with the media attention dying down, he dropped the case and moved on. While the Broadduses continued to be consumed by stress and fear, for the rest of Westfield, the story became little more than a creepy urban legend. A house to walk by on Halloween if you were brave enough. No one who had lived in the house before the Woodses could recall anything unusual, and it was hard for people to imagine that their idyllic neighborhood could be host to something so sinister. A woman who lives nearby told me that after the news broke, she and ten or so of her neighbors had gathered in the street to puzzle out who might have sent the letters. Eventually, she said, they came to a consensus. Maybe the Broadduses had sent the letters to themselves. The theory, so far as it went, was that the Broaduses had suffered buyer's remorse or realized they couldn't afford the home and concocted an elaborate scheme to get out of the sale, or Derek was cooking up some kind of insurance fraud, or they were angling for a movie deal. The Broaduses received several offers but turned them down. Lifetime eventually released a movie called The Watcher, despite a cease and desist letter from the Broaduses arguing that the couple in its movie was biracial and the letters were signed The Raven. Some locals found it noteworthy that over the course of a decade, the Broadduses had upgraded from a $315,000 house to a $770,000 house to a $1.3 million one and refinanced their mortgages. A few weeks after the letters became public, the Westfield leader published an article in which anonymous neighbors were quoted asking why the Broaddus's kept renovating a home they weren't moving into, or questioning whether they had really done that much renovating at all. The leader even cast doubt on Maria's commitment to her family's safety, citing as evidence the fact that she had a public Facebook page with a photo of her kids. The paper did note that the police had tested Maria's DNA, and it didn't match. None of the theories made much logical sense. The Broadduses had answers to every question. How does someone go from a $300,000 house to a $1.3 million house in 10 years? Derek told me, it's America. But they weren't speaking publicly, and the rumors persisted. One Boulevard resident wrote a letter to the editor arguing that an elaborate scheme is underway to defraud the Woods family for millions of dollars. Chambliss told me some Westfield cops even bought into the theory. There were even more skeptics online i live in a neighboring town if these letters have been happening for a while there is no doubt in my mind that it would have been made public way before this lord fluffernutter says on reddit this screams scam the broadises hadn't known how their neighbors would react to news about the watcher but they had lived in the area for a decade and maria's family had been a part of the community for much longer so it was shocking to find themselves accused of being con artists. To Derek, it seemed that some in Westfield preferred the conspiracy theory to considering whether their town might be home to a menace. There's a natural tendency to say, I've lived here for 35 years, nothing's happened to me, Derek said. What happened to my family is an affront to their contention that they're safe, that there's no such thing as mental illness in their community. People don't want to believe this could happen in Westfield. While Maria looks back fondly on her childhood, she was born a few years after Westfield resident John List infamously murdered his wife, mother, and three children in their home, and remembers a period when she and other kids were warned to look out for a strange van driving around town. My mother always told me, don't have a false sense of security, she said. It wasn't that bad things were going on all the time, it was that bad things happen everywhere. She didn't want me to think that this is Mayberry. Many locals I spoke to did seem more concerned that the national press might ruin Westfield's good name. Some were primarily worried about arson or vandalism or whether the Broaduses would maintain the lawn. They did. Mark LaGrippo, the neighborhood's representative on the Westfield Town Council, told me the primary concern he heard from residents was that they were worried about their property value and the stigma of the neighborhood. The Broadduses were suddenly outcasts, not only from their home, but also their town. Derek wanted to leave Westfield, but Maria insisted on not uprooting her kids. This person took so much from us, Maria told me. I wouldn't let them have more. Two years after the watchers' letters arrived, the Broadduses borrowed money from family members to buy a second home in Westfield, using an LLC to keep the location private. But staying in town was stressful. The first time Maria let her daughter go to the pool with friends, she stared at the tracker on her daughter's iPhone the whole time. One of their kids was in language arts class when the teacher led a debate about whether the family and a book they were reading should move to Westfield. The class thought that they should, in part because of how safe it was. Afterward, one of the kids told the Broaddus' child, My parents told me that no matter what your family says, Westfield is safe. Meanwhile, the Broadduses still had to figure out what to do with 657 Boulevard. Their lawsuit was pending, but seemed unlikely to succeed. Some states require sellers to disclose transient social conditions, like murders or possible hauntings. In a 1991 case involving an allegedly ghost-filled house, a New York court ruled that as a matter of law, the house is haunted. But New Jersey had no such regulation. A judge later dismissed this lawsuit. The Woodses, through their attorney, declined to comment for this story. Derek looked into renting the house to the Department of Veterans Affairs and a company that runs halfway homes. In the spring of 2016, they put 657 back on the market, hoping it might garner more interest given how many people had reacted to the letters by saying they would have ignored them and just moved in. The Broadduses held a well-attended open house, after which Derek and Maria spent hours researching every person who signed in and comparing their handwriting to the watchers, but each time a potential buyer expressed interest and met with the Broadduses' lawyer to read the letters, they backed out. Some cocky guy from Staten Island said, Fuck it, I'm going to get a house at a discount, Derek recalled. He reads the letters and we never hear from him again. Feeling as if they were out of options, the Broaddus' real estate lawyer proposed an idea. Sell the house to a developer who could tear it down and split the property into two sellable homes. They thought they could get a million dollars for the lot. Subdivisions like this had become common in Westfield, much to the chagrin of many locals, and 657 was one of the neighborhood's largest lots. Even so, dividing it would require the Westfield Planning Board to grant an exception. The two smaller lots would be 67.4 and 67.6 feet wide, just shy of the mandated 70 feet. When the proposal was publicly announced, Westfield's Facebook groups lit up. Some expressed sympathy for the Broadduses, while others pointed out real estate is always a gamble. Another faction was convinced this was the culmination of a long con. Out of this whole scam artist's story, there ends up being nothing more disturbing than this move a local woman said. A man who coached the Broaddus's son in football wrote, they were in over their head from day one. The application was jarring for the neighbors, who had learned about the watcher from a lawsuit and had always found it strange that the Broaddus's didn't share more information, not seeming to understand they were following orders from the police and trying to protect their kids. A typical Facebook conversation went like this one. Sounds like this whole watcher thing was a ploy. The owners are good people, not a ploy. Okay, I know nothing about them. Kristen Kemp, a friend of the Broaddus's, had tried to defend them on one Facebook forum, but people started attacking her. Somebody asked, how do we know it's not you writing the letters? Kemp told me. When the planning board met to decide the application in January 2017, it had already devoted a three-hour hearing to the issue. More than 100 residents showed up One of them, who lived across the street and had a daughter in the same grade as one of the Broaddus' kids, had retained a lawyer to fight the proposal. Here was a new suspect. Who but the watcher would go so far as to hire an attorney to preserve the house? After a quick discussion about a Wells Fargo branch that wanted to use brighter light bulbs than the town allowed, the room grew as tense as suburban planning board meetings get. James Forst, the Broaddus' attorney, explained that the three-foot exemption was as narrow as the easel he was using to display a map of the neighborhood, a map that showed several lots on the block that were also too small. The neighbors expressed concern that the plan might require knocking down trees and that the new homes would have aesthetically unpleasing front-facing garages. Forst repeatedly threatened the halfway house as a possible alternative. After the lawyers, a parade of neighbors stood to speak. Glenn Dumont, from across the street, said the proposal would spell the end of the 600 block of Boulevard as we know it. A woman whose kids had been to the Broaddus' old home for a birthday party spoke on behalf of nine neighbors and presented 657 Boulevard as Westfield's Alamo. Our neighbors are constantly under attack from turf, lights, parking decks, you name it, she said. If we can't make a stand on Boulevard, where can we? At one point, Abby Langford stood up to say she had spent almost 60 years looking at a magnificent, beautiful house and didn't want to be looking out at a driveway. The hearing lasted four hours, during which there was little discussion of the reason the Broadduses had been driven to tear down their dream home in the first place. Has anybody thought about whether or not this lunatic who did this has been apprehended, said Tom Higgins, who lived across the street toward the end of the hearing. Even so, Higgins pointed out that there was no guarantee the watcher wouldn't send letters to the two new houses and argued that aesthetics should rule the day. Putting up two houses there is going to stick out like an old client of mine in Texas told me, Higgins said. It's going to stick out like a dog's balls. While some of the neighbors expressed compassion, Their focus remained on what the Broadduses stood to gain financially, and what they themselves might lose. At 11.30 p.m., the board unanimously rejected the proposal. A New Jersey judge later denied the Broadduses' appeal of the decision. Derek and Maria were distraught. Even if the plan had gone through, it would have only stanched their financial bleeding. On top of the mortgage and renovations, they have paid around $100,000 in Westfield property taxes. The town denied their request for relief, and spent at least that amount investigating the watcher and exploring ways to deal with the home, not to mention cleaning the gutters. The Broadduses recognized that 657 Boulevard was a beautiful house on a beautiful street that was worth maintaining, but were surprised their neighbors didn't see the uniqueness of the situation. This is my town, Maria told me recently. I grew up here. I came back. I chose to raise my kids here. You know what we've been through. You had the ability, two and a half years into a nightmare, to make it a little better. And you've decided that this house is more important than we are. That's really how I felt. On top of all that, her dad had recently died unexpectedly. Father Michael Saperito, the priest who blessed the house, went to one of the planning board meetings and told me that he was taken aback by how many people had come up to him and said they thought the whole thing was a hoax. I think the human element of the story was kind of lost on the neighbors, Saperito said. The watcher had expressed a desire to protect the boulevard from change, but instead it had been torn apart. Not long after the planning board's decision, the Broadduses got some good news. A family with grown children and two big dogs had agreed to rent 657 Boulevard. The renter told the Star Ledger he wasn't worried about the watcher, though he had a clause in the lease that let him out in case of another letter. Two weeks later, Derek went to 657 to deal with squirrels that had taken up residence in the roof. The renter handed him an envelope that had just arrived. Violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. This letter, two and a half years after the Watcher appeared, came out of nowhere. It was dated February 13th, the day the Broaduses gave depositions in their lawsuit against the Woodses. You wonder who the Watcher is? Turn around, idiots, the letter read. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the Watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. The letter was less stylish and more wrathful than the others, and it seemed the writer had been closely following the story. They had seen the media coverage. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. Derek's surreptitious investigatory efforts. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me telescopes, and binoculars are wonderful inventions, and the attempt to tear down the house. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates, the letter read. My soldiers of the Boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. The renter was mentioned. He was spooked, but agreed to stay if the Broadduses installed cameras around the house, and the letter indicated revenge could come in many forms. Maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. It was like we were back at the beginning, said Maria. But it also meant fresh evidence that might help invigorate the investigation. Derek took the letter to police headquarters, where a detective looked at a neighborhood map and traced a circle around the house, 300 yards in diameter, suggesting the watcher must be somewhere in there. Derek drew one much closer. In my view, it's one of ten houses in the world, he said. The Broaduses continued to press the case, but there still wasn't much for law enforcement to go on, and it was possible to look up and down the street and see the watcher in practically anyone. Residents mentioned to me a teenager whose father had grown up around the corner, and a man who sometimes walked around the neighborhood playing a flute. An elderly couple behind the house had been there 47 years. The husband was the man Bill Woodward had seen sitting in a lawn chair looking at the Broadduses house. One of their kids had married a man who grew up in, of all places, 657 Boulevard. But these were bits of information that could mean everything or nothing, depending on how hard you looked at them. The Broduses sent new names to the investigators whenever they found something odd, but their greatest fear was that the watcher could be someone they'd never suspect. One day, last spring, Derek picked me up at the Westfield train station. We drove past 657 Boulevard, which he and Maria try to avoid unless they have to pick up their tax bill. It's all beautiful trees and beautiful houses, but all I feel is anxious, Derek said. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night thinking what would my life be like if this didn't happen. We lost Christmas a couple times, and you don't get that back, Christmas with a five-year-old. The Broadduses no longer live in ever-present fear that the watcher might strike at any moment, but they continue to deal with lingering effects from the letters. They have a new tenant at 657, but the rent doesn't cover the mortgage. Their kids are occasionally teased at school, and the conspiratorial rumors persist. They try to avoid the people who spoke out against their planning board application or accuse them of being con artists, but suburban life makes that impossible. I see these people on the soccer field, at the train station, and my heart starts going like it did when I played hockey and was about to get hit in a fight, Derek said. When Maria found herself in a spin class at the YMCA with the head of the planning board, she went up afterward and told him, You continue to hurt my family every day. Earlier this year, the planning board approved splitting a lot around the corner that required an even larger exception than the Broaddus's. Most people in Westfield told me they rarely thought of the Watcher anymore. The real estate market was doing fine, for one, and many were surprised to find out the Broadduses were still dealing with the problem. Hindsight made Derek and Maria wonder if they should have sold the house at a loss early on, and 657 Boulevard conjured too much emotional pain for them to ever consider moving in. They hoped that a few years of renting the place without incident will help them sell it. The prosecutor's office was continuing its investigation, but the Broadduses knew it was unlikely the Watcher would ever be caught and that the legal punishment would likely be minimal. The Watcher was also no longer the only person sending anonymous letters in Westfield. Last Christmas Eve, several families received an envelope in their mailboxes. They'd been delivered by hand to the homes of people who had been the most vocal in criticizing the Broadduses online. One of them, who lived a few blocks down on Boulevard, had written on Facebook, I wish we could go back to the days of tar and feathers. I have just the couple in mind. Another family who got the letter told me it was weirdly poetic, as the Watchers had been, and that it accused the families of speculating inaccurately about the Broadduses. It included several stories about recent acts of domestic terrorism in which signs of brewing mental illness had gone unnoticed. The typed letters were signed, Friends of the Broaddus Family. The letter writer had clearly been infected not only with the watcher's penchant for anonymous notes, but also a simmering resentment, one that had snaked its way through Westfield, making enemies of neighbors. The people who received the letters didn't know who sent them, but the tone had a familiar ring to me. When I asked Derek Broadus whether he had written them, he paused for a moment, then admitted that he had. He wasn't proud of it, he hadn't even told his wife, and said they were the only anonymous letters he'd written but he had felt driven to his wit's end, fed up with watching silently as people threw accusations at his family based on practically nothing. One of the people who received the letter told me they had never met the Broadduses and had no interest in doing so. The watcher had been obsessed with 657 Boulevard, and Derek, in turn, became obsessed with the watcher and everything the letters had set in motion. It's like cancer, he told me. We think about it every day. Sitting at the Westfield train station, Derek handed me his phone so I could read the fourth letter. You are despised by the house, it read. And the Watcher won. That concludes this episode of the Cursed Land podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.